Welcome to The Third Space, a show where we strive to reclaim the vital realm beyond home and workplace, igniting transformative conversations in pursuit of wisdom. I'm your host, Avi, and my guest today is David Solomon. David is a scholar and educator, having given numerous lectures around the world in topics ranging from Jewish history to the Tanakh, Jewish philosophy, Hebrew, and the Kabbalah. He holds bachelor degrees in anthropology and English literature, and a doctorate in translation studies from Monash University. He has a podcast called The Collected Talks of David Solomon, and he is also the managing editor at Margalia Press, where he is due to release his latest work, a seven-volume translation of one of Kabbalah's most famous texts, the Tikkunei Hazohar. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. You're currently working on a translation of what many regard to be the cornerstone Kabbalistic text, which is called the Tikkunei HaZohar. It's a, a bold endeavor that you've embarked on for over a decade now. And I just want to open by asking, can you provide a kind of brief context as to how this particular text fits within the overall Kabbalistic framework? So to understand the Tikkunei HaZohar, which many scholars would regard as probably the most, certainly up there as the most influential Kabbalistic text of the last 700 years that's really shaped the development of Kabbalistic thought and its revelation in the world, uh, we would need probably to understand the wider context and framework of what is the Zohar itself. And a lot of people are a little bit confused about that because it is a confusing topic. The idea that there is a book called the Zohar is a little bit artificial. I say artificial because there has been such a thing since the 16th century, but the Zohar really arises out of a literary and spiritual phenomenon um, that is a an entire body of mystical writings that emerged in the 13th century, claiming to have been composed much earlier, and whether they were or whether they weren't, that's when they were revealed in the 13th century, that were circulating for several hundred years until they arrived in a, in a shaped and printed form mm -hmm. in, the, in the middle of the 1500s. The Zohar is not a homogenous text. It contains many layers and components and one of its primary components is a work called the Tikkunim. Very, very difficult word to translate. Very difficult word to translate. It, people, I know that people are familiar with the word Tikkun because they go, ah, oh, Tikkun Olam. Yeah. So it means corrections, yeah, fixings, but it's not really what it means. Tikkun in that context means either adornments, or arrangements, or tikkunim, whatever that might mean, of the Zohar. And really, it's, um, I often say to people that would understand this, that if the Zohar is, um, for those who are familiar with the, with the writings of James Joyce, if the Zohar is Ulysses, 
than the Tikkun Zohar is Finnegan's Wake. It takes the language of the Zohar and the ideas of the Zohar right across the entire breadth and spectrum of Jewish thought and churns it around in this uh, melange of free association to create uh, a dreamlike state of the connection between the divine and the world and history and the Torah and the Jewish people and the cosmos, which the Zohar does also in a general sense, but the Zohar is a bit more linear and narrative. The Tikkun Zohar is, uh, is, is in a way far more dense and complex, um, free associative poetry. And it's very difficult to understand and it's very difficult to translate and make sense of, mm -hmm. but that's hopefully uh, to some extent what we've done. I think that's part of the importance of putting it into the English language. Mm -hmm. There are some essential points about that that I want to address because I know what your question was, and I just I'm, I'm thinking around this to try and get the, sure. the best sound bites out of this. Mm -hmm. There are certain, I don't know how familiar you are with Kabbalistic thought generally, Call me a beginner. Hello, beginner. <laughs> there, there are there are there are certain axiomatic ideas that have emerged in Kabbalah uh, that are the consequence of 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 the Tikkunim rather than the Zohar. Mm -hmm. And maybe I don't want to get too technical, but there are uh, maybe we could, in the course of this interview, explore some of those. Um, Kabbalistic thought and Kabbalistic literature is an ongoing journey of revelation and transmission. Still ongoing mm -hmm. and still revealing. Yeah, I'd like to touch on that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. Of which I see my project as a part. Mm -hmm. In the 13th century was a tremendous nexus of that revelation. Uh, this is pretty much in accordance with Kabbalistic thought because when we arrive at the 13th century, and let's say, for example, we arrive at a year like 1240. So 1240, yeah, you remember that year? You, what was happening in 1240? So what, what was the Hebrew year of 1240? 5,000. 5,000. Oh, 5,000. 5,000, Kabang. Bang. Yeah. So once you get to the year 5,000, you are entering into the sixth millennium of creation according to the, the way that um, Jewish and Midrashic thought has always seen creation. Yeah, without getting into the literary argument about how old the world is, mm -hmm. but the history of human endeavor. Mm -hmm. You have the history of written and revealed thought. We're entering into the sixth millennium of that and around the 1240 and around the 13th century. And each millennium is connected with a day of creation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And humanity was created on the sixth day. Mm -hmm. So the sixth millennium is always seen as the, the millennium of man with the capital M. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and therefore unique revelations were arising in Jewish thought and in Kabbalah uh, as a part of that of that nexus. And therefore, it's no surprise that we have a complete, uh, on the one hand, a renaissance, but also a revolution of of mystical thought. And uh, the Zohar emerges as it bursts out in this incredibly creative wellspring uh, of spiritual revelation, written in Aramaic, which is a unique language by which to express spiritual concepts. Mm. And um, one of my big journeys, of course, has been into the language of Aramaic, which is sublime and seductive at the same time and has a very terse vocabulary by which you're able to express these incredibly celestial ideas. And the Tsar takes a core idea that has been current for a while uh, that some of your, you and some of your uh, listeners might uh, be familiar with it in varying degrees. And that's the idea of the Sfirot. Yeah. Uh, the idea that God is revealed to the world in uh, through uh, 10 creative modalities, we might call them. Or actually, that's not my term. That's that's Shalom's term, creative modalities, which is nice. I like that. And that that, that that's that that's the kernel idea behind the Zohar's poetically driven revelation about the relationship between God and the world. The Zohar is huge. It's thousands of pages in manuscript form. It's circulating in manuscript for a while. Now imagine if someone read all of that, yeah, and then consumed about 10 buckets of LSD (laughs) and sat down and thought about it, they would come up with something like the Tikkunim. The the Zohar and the Tikkunim and other associated literature of what we might called that literary phenomenon is circulating in manuscripts for a few hundred years before it reaches what they call the altar of the press. There was, in fact, a whole polemic and controversy about whether or not the Zohar should ever be printed or not. Mm. Interestingly enough, there's a little bit of that in my work as well, because printing is one thing, and translating is another. And some people have argued that the Zohar should not be translated. Well, it's too late for that. But some others have argued that maybe the Tikkunim should not be translated. Tikkunim is a very, very revealed text. Mm -hmm. People who read my translation, and I don't think there'll be many. Many will be interested in it, but I don't know how many will sit down and actually read it. And it's a thousands of pages long, my translation. It's, mm-hmm. it's a long poem. It goes across quite a number of volumes. Mm-hmm. It's extremely revealed and it's extremely confronting. Could you shed some light on what motivated you to start the scholarship? Yeah. I'm sitting in Jerusalem. Uh, we were living in the old city. So the old city contains four quarters. Yeah. Yeah. 
the Jewish quarter, the Rova, yeah. the Christian quarter, the Armenian quarter, and the Muslim quarter. And we were living in a house that was at the exact juncture of all four corners in a place of the old city that those who know the old city know that there's this spot called Galicia. So we were living right there at the juncture of the four corners. And I'm a late night person, so I'm working and I'm reading and I'm studying all night. And I always, every night, I would go to bed when I would hear Al-Fajr coming through the window, which is the call for the the early morning dawn prayers for the faithful. And so I start hearing people outside making their way to Harabayit, whether they are going to Al-Fajr or whether they are going to Vatikin at the Kotel. Yeah, (laughs) people are making, and I'm hearing this call. And it was at that moment that I came across a text and I thought, oh, I don't really understand what that's saying. I'll look at a translation because I'm not I'm not ashamed to look at translations. I think translations are really important. They help us. We have to be really careful about translations, but they are one of the great devices by which we can arrive at meaning. Mm. And I made a mental note. I didn't have a translation of the Tikkunim in my library, and I thought, well, that's missing. I'll make a note to look it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when I went to look it up anywhere, I soon discovered that no English translation of the Tikkunim existed. So I had a Hebrew translation and I had books, um, Tikkunim, with commentaries, but there was no English translation. I was completely and absolutely astonished. So I go, okay, well, at some point, at some point, someone's going to be a hero and make a name for themselves and get themselves into the canon by creating the first Western language translation of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can't do a project like that unless you go to the library. Yeah? And I don't just mean the library. I mean the library. Do you know what the capital library? Capital T, capital L. Capital T, capital L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any Kabbalistic scholar in the world will know that what it means by the library. Is this not the University of Toronto? Uni- no, no. University of what? Toronto. No, no. No? No. What made you mention the University of Toronto? They have some manuscripts there How or do you know this? something. How do you know I, this? I don't know. It's somewhere in the back of my brain. You tickled a neuron there. And... Now, how do you know that? <laughs> That's very interesting you say that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, no, I think I know maybe how you got there. Yeah. But that's all right. No, no. The library is the is <laughs> is the Sholem collection. It's the Gershom Sholem Library. Sholem's yeah, personal yeah. library mm-hmm. became the nucleus mm-hmm. of a Kabbalistic library housed in the National Library of Israel, mm-hmm. which is currently in the Give Up Rum campus, but is going to be moving soon to its own dedicated space. Okay. It is the greatest, not just the greatest Kabbalistic library in the world, but it's the greatest Kabbalistic library that's ever existed. And every single Kabbalistic book that's published or produced ends up there. They get everything. And it's also a really nice space to, like, you walk in there and it's like you're in another world. So I had to go there. And on one of my first visits there, after starting the Tikkunim, I was working at a desk... Yeah. And bounding across to me, yeah, was 
a particular well-known academic, yeah? An academic, yeah, I'll name him, yeah? <laughs> Professor da uh, Professor Daniel Abrams, who's Professor of Jewish Mysticism at Bar-Ilan, who mm -hmm. is a huge figure in the world of academic Kabbalistic scholarship, because you know that Kabbalistic scholarship has its figures in the religious world, it has its figures in the secular academic world, and so mm -hmm. on. And he said to me, oh, I hear you're translating. Are you David Solomon? I hear you're translating the Tikkunim. You're translating the Tikkunim Zohar. And I said, yes. He goes, what edition are you translating? And I said, I don't know. Good, <laughs> good question. And he goes, well, what have you translated? So I showed him I had basically translated from a combination between, a bit of a hybrid a combination between the Mossad Rav Kook edition mm -hmm. by Rav Ruven Margoliot and uh, the edition produced by Rav Daniel Frisch for his Matok Midvash mm -hmm. version. His Hebrew translation I'd found useful and, and commentary in different places. But I hadn't really given thought to what exactly I'm transmitting here in terms of the actual text. Now, here's what's interesting and what most people don't realize, yeah? You know how reality, yeah, is composed of things that you and I would regard as concrete, yeah? Like like, like, like solid objects. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Chair, okay. yeah. Like Palm. you, Palm. like, Palm. Yeah, 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 material yeah. substance. Sure. Yeah? And we know from science, because science tells us, very few of us have actually seen this, but science tells us that the closer you get to that substance, the more tenuous that substance is. Mm. And you get right down to the, you know, you get down to the molecular, the atomic, and then the quantum level. Less substance there actually. It's really vibrating in and out of existence all the time. It's very, very fuzzy down there. Mm. Yeah? <laughs> Pardon the expression. <laughs> 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 That's how Jewish texts are. We think of them as monolithic objects, mm -hmm. but when you get very, very close at a very granular level, they're vibrating with fluctuations all over the place. So a book like the Zohar, which has undergone hundreds of years of manuscript and print transmission, on almost every line there are little, tiny little quirks in how whole lines or words or sentences or phrases are transmitted. Mm -hmm. If you stand back, it all looks the same. But it's a bit of, so when we talk about which version, it's very important to know what version are you actually transmitting. Now, Danny Matt, for example, and this is where I had a disagreement with his methodology, Danny Matt decided that what he would do was basically reinvent the Zohar. He was going to go back to medieval manuscripts and reconstruct what he thought the original Zohar looked like. Mm -hmm. Which means that what he produced is similar to the received Zohar we have today. Like when you go to a shop and you buy the Zohar in three big volumes, the Aramaic, the original, it looks kind of like it, but the problem is that you're constantly looking for things in his translation that you can't find because he based it all. If it wasn't in manuscript that was in front of him, he had like three or four 
favourite manuscripts. And if they weren't there, and he made decisions in his reconstructed, it's called an urtext methodology. It's an attempt to try and reconstruct what you think it was, rather than saying, I'm actually going to take a common edition of the Zohar and translate it so that people can know what it says. He went back and they went, got very clever and they reconstructed. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to find an edition that was really, really influential in the reception history of the printed Tikkunei Zohar, which is why we decided to do Constantinople 1740, mm-hmm. which turns out is a fascinating, fascinating edition. But in doing so, I worked with some manuscripts, one of which is the manuscript in Toronto. And that's... Gotcha. There's a very, very famous manuscript in Toronto of the Tikkunim because it was famous because it's the earliest that we have. Mm-hmm. And also because of its ownership history, because at some point it was owned by Shabtai Tzvi. Wow. Yes, big wow. Wow. And that's why what's amazing is when you read through it, it's hundreds of pages of dense folio, manuscripted folio. By the way, Shabtai Tzvi, for those who don't know, was a false messiah. And I think it was in the 17th yeah, 17th century. century. Yeah. Every, every, yeah. every time you see the word Shabtai in the text, yeah. Yeah, someone has drawn in the, colof- in the margin a giant phallus. <laughs> It's a remarkable manuscript, and so I was very, I was very. I actually went to Toronto to to look at it physically. It was very interesting. So this journey's taken me a lot of places. I feel like the Kabbalah and any sort of engagement in mysticism involves the need to move beyond existing mental models you have of the world. Sure. And I feel like sure. I heard that there's this rather peculiar tradition in Kabbalah scholarship where you study from midnight to dawn Mm -hmm. and when i first heard that it reminded me of uh salvador dali Mm -hmm. i don't know if you know this story but basically what he would do to stimulate his creative juices was hold a metal key in his hand and he would poise it above a metal plate that he had just underneath it and try and fall asleep and as he was drifting off the key would slip from his fingers and clang against the plate and it would wake him up. And in that moment, he reported having his most creative outputs. And actually, Thomas Edison had a similar thing. Um, and I suspect, I mean, this is total conjecture, but I suspect what's happening in this process is at the moment when you shift from wakefulness to sleep, the models and concepts that you use to interpret the world kind of a loosened and it's in those specific moments of experience that you can be unconstrained from your yes. existing mental filters. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. so I wonder if that's This is what I meant when I was alluding earlier to Joyce. Yes, there, there, yes. There, there, you enter into a car and, and Tikkunim is very, very much like that. Yeah. It's like this dreamy, associative, free association, highly kind of juxtaposed juxtaposition of Thoughts and concepts, Mm -hmm. definitely. Sure, yeah. And so on that, riffing off that idea, like mental models kind of needing to challenge. So the whole of Kabbalah, like, 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 like any mysticism, is predicated on the idea that this reality that we see, that we engage in, is not really what's going on. There is a deeper 
more substantial reality behind this one that can be accessed through various mental states, through different techniques, through different types of awarenesses. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And Kabbalah as a form of mysticism uh, works on delineating the pathways into that reality to understand cosmic time and cosmic meaning. For example, if we look at a subject, a fairly documented subject like history, so the Jewish people generally, I mean, in, in their spiritual approaches, but particularly Kabbalah, doesn't see history as a series of causes and effects and facts mm -hmm. as mundane perspectives might see history. But that history is a cosmic line. It's a cosmic um, unfolding towards a particular end goal or a particular purpose for humanity and the world. And everything that happens at every stage in history has um, has has a particular place and meaning in that unfolding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we see this in Jewish history uh, to make sense of it. And that, that I was alluding to that earlier, Avishai, when I said about the Zohar being revealed when it's revealed. Sure, yeah, like a continual process. Yeah, it's not an accident. It's not sure. simply a confluence of circumstances. Sure. There is, it's, it's a window on a whole other cosmic time frame that is, that is happening through us and around yeah. us. Yeah, we're, we're not just observers of history. We are history. I mean, even in our generation, we are part of that. And what we do has resonance and meaning. So this is actually, when I was watching one of your lectures on the Zohar, you mentioned um, that this continual process of revelation takes place. And um, the Zohar, of course, is an extent, it comes from Torah interpretation. Like the Torah is the source material of which the, the Zohar- The Torah is the source material for yeah. everything in Jewish thought yes, and ideas, yes. everything. If you're not engaging with the Torah at some level- You're missing- well, you're not just missing, you're on another, you're playing yeah, somewhere a sport else. on another field. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it got me thinking like, um, so uh, the way it's the, the dialectic that we have with the source material is constantly changing. And I was wondering if, um, <coughs> well, I actually want to give a bit of context first for this question. So there's the Nietzschean idea that God is dead, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of trite at this point. But the truth is that a lot of people are, uh, alienated by Judaism and um, particularly orthodoxy, which doesn't seem to many to um, interface with modern times. Like it's a, the mythology is thousands of years old, but without doing some serious digging into the metaphorical and psychological truths inside of it, it doesn't relate to them. And so I was wondering, based off the fact that we were talking about how the Zohar is like this continual process of revelation, could we ever, re-enter an age of prophecy where new mythology is created or is it kind of static? Nothing is static. And of course, we are entering, will enter and are entering 
a new frame of prophecy, mm-hmm. the restoration of Nivua, of the full concept of prophecy is not even radical. It's a it's a mainstay principle of Jewish eschatology mm-hmm. and that at some point we'll have the fully restored prophetic experience. But even now, and in any generation, we can to some extent see that unfold even in the mundane and even what we think. You, you see, Judaism, some people make the mistake of thinking that Judaism is always trying to memorialize all things that happened in the past or to to look to the past as being the anchor point and we kind of have moved away from that and we're just now living out some kind of mundane trailing off of things that went on then, which is a very great mistake because our existence in the world is as real as it was then and what we create today will be the mythologies for the future. No, that point doesn't sit with you? Elaborate on that if you can. The mythologies of the future. Okay, I have, to be, I, have to, I have to be careful here. Yeah. Because I don't want to say anything that might alienate some of your viewers. Okay. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But I don't believe, I think I'm not the only one, that the Torah, and when I say the Torah, I mean in its wider encompassing sense as well as its more specific sense. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the Torah is static. You, you, you said just before we took a break that, you know, when we come back, we might talk about wackier ideas. Here's one for you. And I actually think that, um, that I've written about this um, I haven't published on this because it's just too out there. And when I say this to you, you're going to go, David, I think you need to go home and take your medication. But (laughs) in a sense, I believe that Jewish texts are coming to us from the future. They are traveling backwards in time. Whereas, because their perfected state, they are traveling towards their perfected state. And their perfected state is in the past. And we are getting the early iterations of them as we move towards the future. It's a very complex argument. I've written about it philosophically and it's it's, it's just not quite cooked enough to be out there. Sure. But... I like it. This is the place where we, you know, shape yeah, these ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we may, in linear time, we seem to be moving to more and more uncertainty in relation to these texts, yeah? People think they know what the Zohar is, but the Zohar, the the closer you look at it, the less certain it is, yeah? And the more we drive that forward, the more uncertain it becomes until it will eventually dissipate. Mm -hmm. And yet it coalesces and adheres and coalesces if you look at it coming from the future, moving back towards the past. Mm -hmm. Difficult idea to really explore right now but even in an applied grounded realized sense 
the Torah is not static. If you look, if you look at the evolution of halacha, if you look at the evolution of Jewish philosophy, if you look at the evolution of 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 Jewish culture itself, there are very. It's hard to point to anything that is absolutely linear and anchored in a static mm. sense. My, I guess my question was like, yes, our interpretation and the dialectic we have with the text is forever unfolding and changing, but the the source material itself, would that, like the words on the page, the, the actual stories, would that body ever get expanded? Yes. In fact, it's being expanded all the time. Okay. There's a word in, in, in literary scholarship that's a bit of a dirty word, but I actually see it as an amazing word, um, a word that r- really unpacks a whole lot of things about Jewish texts. Are you familiar with the word pseudepigrapha? I can't say I am. <laughs> Surprisingly. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. around the room and uh, <laughs> of the many people assembled, there seems to be a general acknowledgement that that's not a word that they use every day. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a slur at first. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So pseudepigrapha, as you can imagine, if you think about the word, are writings that are invented but then cast in the mould of belonging to some earlier canonic state. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the Zohar, for example, and we were talking about the Zohar, so I'll use that as a prime example because it's so often said of the Zohar by scholars that the Zohar was a pseudepigraphic text. Yeah. Okay. It claims to have been written in the Tanaitic period in second century Palestine, but in fact it was a product of 13th century Spain and they pseudepigraphically projected it back into second century Palestine. Sure. Yeah. And there's that whole discussion. I mean, obviously, the traditional religious world doesn't accept that. Mm -hmm. The academic, secular world totally accepts that. That's their given standing point. I come along and I say, well, let's not get into that debate. It's a little bit like what Franz Rosenzweig said about the Torah, right? I'm not so much concerned about who or when it was written, who wrote it or when it was written, I'm more concerned about what am I going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So similarly with the Zohar, the bottom line is, is that whether you think it was written pseudepigraphically or whether you think it's an authentic sure. product of the Mishnahic period, yeah. it's a revelation that happens at a moment in time in history. But it is kind of interesting because it's not just the Zohar. It is possible basically to say it of all Jewish texts, that they are at some level pseudepigraphic. You mm-hmm. could have that perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you start to think, well, if they could do it then, why wouldn't we not be able to do it now? And then you think about that some more and you go, well, actually, pseudepigrapha is uniquely suited to a literary canon every time it changes its platform of transmission. So when, for example, we went from manuscript to print, you can see it's possible to insert things into the canon that have always been there. 
And now, in the course of the last 20, 30 years, as we transition to digital media and the internet, we can present things that have always been there. So then people go, oh, really? But there are physical artifacts. Oh, are there? I have worked out. <coughs> I haven't done it. Or at least if I have, I wouldn't tell you. But I have worked out how you could actually insert things right now into the canon for which there would be physical evidence mm. that would be sufficient for scholars to say, no, that's that's a text that's always been there. Um, and the the reality is that people are doing that right now. Mm -hmm. Now, right now is not when they'll be picked up. They'll be picked up in a few centuries' time. And they will have always been there. They will have always been there. Jewish texts are moving from the future to the past. We're not going to make this a lecture on Apicursus. <laughs> but I'm just saying that yeah. the whole of the Jewish textual canon vibrates with uncertainty and instability at every angle. It's a bit of a mind trick to have to say it's a great big monolithic, monolithic block. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of a mind trick to have to say that, oh, that's prophecy, but what happens later is not. And what happens later is not revelation, that revelation only happens here. Mm -hmm. Things are constantly evolving and changing. The Jewish people treat the entire span of the last few millennia as their play field. Yeah, I want to kind of return. I think we went a bit deep, which I was very, oh, sorry. very happy yeah. and, and keen yeah. to do. But I, yeah. I want to yeah. zoom out back to where we were, which sure. was talking about um, the deconstruction of mental models as like a as a requisite to access. Kabbalah, potentially. Mm -hmm. and um, You do have to break down, I think, your existing frameworks. Now, now a yeah. lot of people would say, no, Kabbalah is just another level of Torah. Yeah. So when you have learnt the Tanakh and you've learnt Midrash and you've learnt Talmud and you've filled your stomach with Halakha and all the different things and the, everything else, oh, no, you're ready for Kabbalah. And, it's just, and it works consistently and, and their entire effort is focused on integrating that into all of your former knowledge and making it all consistent. Mm -hmm. There's a big strive for consistency. Sure. Yeah? Across all the different layers. But at some point, all the great Kabbalists that I have read and experienced have had to break down their preconceptions about what they thought was going on and rebuild it from scratch. If you're not doing that, then you're not really engaging with what those deep levels of Jewish spirituality are asking you to do. They sure. ask you to break it down at a personal level, yeah. on, on an existential level, and on a mental level. Yeah. You've got to break it down. Yeah, and that's quite a dangerous endeavor. I mean, we've got the the legend of the of the four rabbis who enter the orchard, which Maybe. is, of course, the um, uh, it's a metaphor for you know the study of Jewish mysticism, and they're all differently affected. One of them 
dies, another one goes insane, another one becomes heretical. And there's only one, Rabbi Akiva, who emerges enlightened, right? And I think that this has something to do with something I've, I learned recently about the relationship between awe and horror. The thing that they seem to have in common is a confrontation with what some would call the mysterious or, or the divine or the numinous or whatever you want to call it. And um, basically any sort of phenomenon that challenges our existing mental models of the world and, and our grip on reality. And the difference between the two emotions is that as this phenomenon rushes towards you, if it comes at you too much too quickly, you respond by being horrified. But if it comes at you at an apprehensible pace, then it's awe. And I think this suggests that there is sort of a, a need to be prepared and a need to be qualified before studying the Kabbalah because it is that encounter. And so my question as a sort of preamble is there, I know there's a whole bunch of modern movements that try to make the Kabbalah and, and all sorts of Kabbalah, Kabbalistic teachings more accessible to the public. I'm wondering what you think about those movements. I wonder if you think Hasidism is one such movement and um, what you think about the project, if, if, if this process of making the Kabbalah more palatable is actually causing us to lose something in the process. I hear the question. So you've asked a couple of questions inside that question. I did. Um, there have for some time now been attempts to reduce Kabbalistic knowledge and Kabbalistic insights into digestible and bite-size uh, perspectives and you know, slice up the wisdom cake so everybody can mm -hmm. munch on it. In my experience, which is extensive, in that particular framework, there is inevitably something lost. I think that the assumption inside your question that we lose is definitively yes. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. <laughs> I'm going to say something a bit contentious that I have said elsewhere, but then people are horrified. But um, that's what happens. <laughs> I don't believe that Hasidism in its um, writings and in its teachings is mystical. It's not mysticism. It's using the symbology and the language of Kabbalah, but it's not Jewish mysticism. It's giving you answers. The Kabbalah, as with all true spirituality, deals with questions. Answers belong in the realm of religion. Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is not a religion. It doesn't sit on the bookshelf of ideas. 
somewhere between Islam and Christianity. Mm. A person can eat a pork chop sitting in a jacuzzi on Yom Kippur afternoon, but they are still Jewish. And what they're doing has a cosmic effect. Judaism is comprised, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual system, it's a people, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a condition of being in the world. It's something else entirely. That's why it's not for everybody. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> These attempts over the last few hundred years to, to take amazing and shattering and um, earth-movingly profound ideas like Lurianic Kabbalah and reduce them, whether you are talking about the attempts, for example, of, the, uh, of say, the Kabbalah Center, which evolves from the thought of, of, uh, of Ravashlag and then brings it down into um, a system which is kind of some kind of psychological self-help mechanism, whether you're talking about uh, Chabad, which, you know, evolving from the thought of, say, Shnir Zalman of Liadi uh, to once again deal with a meditative program for towards some kind of... Um, you know, shared enlightenment. They, they, these, once again, they use the symbology of the Kabbalah, so they are, in a sense, Kabbalistic in the language they use, but they have actually removed the Mistorum. Yeah? The true Kabbalist for Chabad, right, is the Rebbe. The Rebbe is in communion with God, and we're all in communion with the Rebbe. Yeah? But that's not really how Kabbalah works. Kabbalah is not a system that comes to people and you go, oh, have a look at this, right? To be a Kabbalist, you have to have a yearning and you have to have a sense in which you really, really, really want to know the mystery behind it. And you're prepared to do the work. You're prepared to go on that journey. Right. It's like a posture. I don't know exactly what you mean by posture. I mean, it's it, it, it's an attitude. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's what it's, I mean. But but it's a uh, yeah. I was uh, I mean, just on a personal level, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on another rant. But just on a personal level, yeah. I I wanted to be a capitalist when I was eleven, and not because I had some kind of ephemeral thing. I did have an ephemeral thing, but I had a teacher, yeah. Who was a he was a great Kabbalist. Mm. And he happened to be living in the city where I was living, and I was friends with his son. And so he was teaching us, but he wasn't teaching us Kabbalah. But he would sit with his Kabbalistic library behind him, and I would be seeing books that were vibrating in these amazing colours and 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 scents, and I'd go and I'd say, Oh, what's that book? And he would go, Ah, that book. Oh. Right? And I go, what about that one? He goes, oh, no, 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 that <laughs> book. And, I, da, 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 da. and then I'd say to him, like, when you've read all these books, which is the one that, you know, and he goes, ah, oh, that's that one. No, 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 I can't. So that engendered in me this incredible desire to know what was in those books mm-hmm. and to be a part of that journey. So when I was already 16... 
and I found myself in a position to be able to get some of those books for myself and to access them, I started trying to learn them. Yeah? Sure. Then I soon realized, and this is this is important, I soon realized over the course of the next couple of years, and I eventually I was had the merit to learn in various Shivat in Australia and Israel and so on, but I discovered that all, all of these books were telling me different things that I needed to access this in different pathways. Those formative years where I didn't really understand what I was reading, but I knew that they were all talking about the same thing in different ways, was immensely enlightening for me and was part of why I believe that I am contributing to a growing movement within Jewish mystical thought, what we might call what I have termed the new synthesis, which is that all of these paths can be integrated, even paths that have never spoken to each other or within which each school, other schools are not mentioned, but you bring them all together to create this holistic approach. I think that's actually the work of our generation is to do that. Yeah. And people don't realize, for example, you have someone who goes to, let's say, the Kabbalah Center, yeah? I mean, apart from all the issues to do with that. And they learn Ashlagi in Kabbalah, yeah? They don't realize... Yeah, I mean, they walk in. That if they walked into the Shalom Library, they would realize that everything that they thought constituted the Kabbalah, yeah, occupies about half a shelf, yeah, in an entire library of Kabbalistic books. That's like I, I didn't realize, right? Same with Chabad, yeah. I mean, Chabad has got an amazing library of m- mystical. Hasidic texts, mm-hmm. but they're not Kabbalistic. There's maybe a few of them that are Kabbalistic in nature because they really do dive deep into Kabbalistic texts and explore that mystery, but it's only a part of the picture. It's only a part of the picture. So now people are taking parts of that picture and they're putting them all together. Really fascinating time to be in Jewish history and in Kabbalistic thought right now. Not to mention the fact, yeah, not to mention the fact that we have had very close to our generation two astonishingly impactful events that would be enormous at any stage in Jewish history. Yep, the Holocaust, the Shoah on the one hand, the establishment of the State of Israel on the other, all within three years of each other. We haven't really yet integrated that. We haven't yet really integrated that. Shalom tells us, for example, and whether he's right or wrong is a separate discussion, but he says, for example, the whole of Lurianic thought emerges as a reaction yeah, to the catastrophe of the expulsion from Spain. Yeah, that gets internalized and emerges as a mystical theory. Mm-hmm. Oh, we haven't done that yet. We haven't done that. We haven't even begun to internalize and, and, and unpack what the cosmic effect of the Holocaust and the establishment of the State of Israel is. And why have we not done that? Because we don't know. There's your prophetic insight. When that gets worked out. And yeah. when that gets worked out, it'll get worked out retroactively. Yeah. So it will become a part of, oh, no, that was always known. 
Yeah, we, we are running out of time and um, there are so many questions I still want to ask you and I need to kind of triage in my mind what the very best one is to ask right now. And I think it's this. <clears throat> I want your take on whether you think, okay, no, let me back up. There's a song I heard recently, embarrassingly recently, I, sh I should have known it for years, called My Sweet Lord. George, oh, George Harrison. Harrison. I'm so glad you know it. Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. It's such a beautiful song. You heard that recently? Yes. Embarrassingly recent. Um, yeah. I, I bet you know what? It I'm making up for Krishna lost time. Phase. He's having Krishna phase. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Exactly. Yeah. When I so what I love about that song is the way he beautifully. It's got a beautiful guitar riff. Of course. Yeah. yeah. What you like about the song is what. So the way he's able to weave together like Eastern and Western religious ideals mm. through the use of like this subliminal change in the chorus when he's, when he's saying hallelujah yeah. and then he goes Hare Krishna, he yeah. kind of, you know, makes that transition. It's, that's that's it's, deliberate. It's, of course it's deliberate. <laughs> I, I love that. But what I'll never forget the first time I heard it because my reaction was like this visceral disgust. I I think it's from my Jewish education. I think what happened was I was taught that there is there is a way, there is a truth for us, the Jewish people, and anything outside of that is kind of heretical, or as you the word you used earlier on, apikoros. Wow. So this Great. is this is the question I want to ask you because I've been struggling with that for a while. It's actually a fairly old debate. I've only recently found out about it. Perennialism versus pluralism. So perennialism, the idea that all religions kind of uh, converge on a, on, a, on a single ultimate truth. And um, pluralism is that each... Yeah, in the, words, in the words of Jonathan Sachs, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who, who got into big trouble for this with right. the authorities when he said he wrote in his, in his first... Uh, in that... In that uh, in that famous, and what I think is his greatest book, The Dignity of Difference, one of his early books, yeah. where he writes, in heaven there is one truth, on earth there are many truths. Mm -hmm. and, 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 they, and they actually forced him to republish the book without that statement under threat of excommunication. Yeah, 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 the, the, the Haredi Beth thing, because they couldn't handle it. They right. couldn't handle it. What do you mean on earth there are many truths? It's going to open the door to a whole lot of archi-parchim. That's so, so interesting because it's kind of related to the distinction between like esoteric knowledge and the exoteric knowledge, the stuff that we learn in classrooms, the rituals we yeah, do. There is a confusion and then the, in the concept stuff. of truth that has evolved over time from the Greek Aletheia and, and, and the rise of science and yeah. the concept of mathematically provable scientific fact as being yes. equated with truth versus existential truth and subjective truth and human truth, which is far more fluid. And... Um, the, 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 that that distortion has all been condensed and cordialized into this word truth that people now use almost as a weapon. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I'm guessing, yeah. So that that's that sums up your stance on that matter. What does? A, a, am I heretical for listening to my sweet lord and finding a connection to it? Heresy, yeah, at the end of the day, has halachic definitions. 
Heresy is a halachic issue. Mm-hmm. If you want to find out if you're a heretic, you go and ask your local Orthodox rabbi. And you say to him, dude, I enjoyed listening to John Harrison's My Sweet Lord. Does that make me a heretic? And he'll go, hmm, let me think, right? And if he's a good rabbi, he'll look up sources, right? Mm-hmm. And he'll, pr- you're not a heretic for listening to a song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and heresy, in halachic terms, we've had several very good definitions of heresy. Probably the best framework for that is, you know, Provided in uh, throughout the Middle Ages and towards the late Middle Ages, the Rambam provides one. You've got later ones, Yosef Albo. There, there, there's all the parameters about what rounds heresy, right? Mm-hmm. But if you believe in one God, if you believe that there's a revelation of that God uniquely to the Jewish people, if you believe in the concept of reward and punishment, you're not a heretic, mm-hmm. or that you know that actions have moral actions have consequences and so on. Yeah, there's definitions of heresy. I'm not going to answer that question about whether you're a heretic. Right? Thank God. Thank God. If you for that. feel like you're a heretic, Thank then God you're probably that. a heretic. And then you'd have to ask yourself. Then you'd have to ask yourself, even if you arrived at the realization that, oh my gosh, I'm a heretic. Right? Mm. Does that matter? Look, <clears throat> I once had a guy come to me, right? Because I was, for a few years, I was dabbling in teaching people for conversion to Judaism. I was working with the Melbourne Beth Din. We were developing a curriculum. They had asked me as an educator to come in and get involved in that. So I was dealing with a few of these potential conversion candidates. And one guy came to me and he said, I love Judaism. I love the Chagim. I love the festivals. I love the life. I love everything. He goes, and I really want to become Jewish. But I've got two problems. Yeah. One is, one is, I refuse to be circumcised, <laughs> right? I, well, don't, I won't be circumcised. Going. And the second thing is, I don't believe in God, right? Mm. Is that a problem? And I said, well, <laughs> yes and no, right? On a surface level, yeah, on the external level, the problem of you not wanting to part with your foreskin is up here. And the problem of you not believing in God is down here, right? I said, because basically, just don't tell anyone, (laughs) right? Heresy is involved in what you say. Judaism allows you, as Spinoza famously enunciated, freedom of thought. No rabbi or anyone can tell me what I can think in my own head, Mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. What I express is different. Yeah. Of course, on an internal level, it's reversed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not believing in God is a big problem, but that's your business. Sure. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Judaism is very fluid. Yeah. But therefore, we have halakhic definitions about what is norm core in terms of the Jewish people going forward. But even the norm core changes. Yeah. Sure. We just happen to live in a certain phase phase in history and we have to live as authentically as we can one thing however is that if we depart too far from the Torah then we will not be part of the ongoing continuum that continuum will always be an evolution from the Torah now I know that at the beginning of this interview you talked about the Torah's mythologies and some people think it's out of date and whatever Mm -hmm. yeah so engage with it. 
make it have meaning for you. There is a reason that these texts are there. There's a reason that these texts are revealed. There is a reason that these texts continue to influence the direction of the Jewish people. Yeah? We have some serious issues in our generation with how we can make that have meaning for us. I do not believe the answer is found in, for example, these guys that want to run up on Harabayat and rebuild the temple. Yeah? I don't know that that's going to bring peace to the world right now. Yeah? I think that some aspects of things that are taught in the religious world today are so ridiculously literal that in our generation, they actually can have the effect of bringing the Torah into disrepute. But that doesn't mean that we negate the Torah. We have to negate ourselves. We have to, in a sense, we have to realign uh, our thinking or our engagement with the Torah to understand what those mean for us. Yeah? Now, for example, people say, I mean, the whole Torah, every single word in the Torah is prophetic. Every, there's no document like the Torah. So people go, oh, yeah, the flood, right? Mm. I'm not going to believe in the mabul. Mm. I'm not going to believe in the flood. And you know what I say to them? You're living in the flood, you muppet. <laughs> what is happening right now to knowledge and information? We are being, everything is being. Mm -hmm. The whole of the hierarchy of canon, the whole of the notion of what is, it's just all wooden in the internet where Shakespeare and someone's TikTok video is coming to me on the same screen at the same time, da-da-da, everything's being obliterated. The only texts that are not being obliterated, yep, is the Torah. Because the Jewish people decided that you can't use the internet on Shabbat. You can't read the Torah from a screen. My name. So every single thing in the Torah is prophetic. Now, I'm not saying that my interpretation of that is necessarily the truth. I'm just saying that in every generation, we have to look at what's going on. Mm -hmm. And we have to engage with the Torah at that level. I think that's a really perfect place to end. Yeah, probably. That is, yeah, excellent. Thank you so much, David. Thank, Thank you, Avishai. That's been a very good interview.